Dr. Kurt Richter is, a, is what's called a, a um, psychobiologist at the um, Johns Hopkins University in, in uh, Maryland. And uh, some years ago, uh, Dr. Richter conducted an experiment that tested in a laboratory how long rats could tread water. I know you're thinking, they give out grants for this stuff? <laughs> yeah, they do. Anyway, Richter discovered the average rat can keep himself afloat uh, somewhere between 8 and maybe 15 minutes. Uh, and what they did is they just got this big tub of water. They introduced a, a current into it, so it was sort of like a whirlpool swirling. They dropped the rats in, and they just hit the stopwatch, and they watched how long the rats could do it, uh, keep treading water in this, uh, in this container. And at 15 minutes, even the Michael Phelps of rats would, would, uh, would give up, would just give up and uh, would, would go under. So then Professor Richter introduced uh, a new element to the study. And so what he did was he, he waited, and, and just as a rat was, was starting to go under, was really sinking, was giving up uh, the ghost in a sense, he would reach in and he would scoop the poor animal out, and he would take him over to a soft towel and he would dry him off very gently, and then he would feed the rat, and he would give the rat time to recover and to rest up, and then, after a little while, he would put the rat back in to, to the pool. Now, to Richter's astonishment, the strongest rat could now stay above water for more than 15 minutes. How much more than 15 minutes do you think that rat could stay above water now? Would you give it another 15 minutes, maybe 30 full minutes? How, how many would go for an hour? For a full hour. Richter found that the strongest of the rats could now tread water for up to 60 hours. 60 hours. What was the critical difference? Hope. Hope. Suddenly, what had been introduced into that animal's life was the thought that it was possible at any moment that some benevolent hand would reach down and scoop them up and out and rescue them from the predicament that they were in. And that hope of such an intervention supplied them with the courage that they needed to keep on keeping on when things were hard. Now, I know the comparison isn't particularly flattering here, <laughs> but I got this theory that, that life gets a little bit like that for all of us. And, and maybe especially at this time of the year, having just been through the incredible treading water we've all been doing through the holiday season and facing all of the currents that we see coming our way in this year to come, uh, many of us are finding ourselves uh, feeling the burn, feeling the fatigue of life. But I have this think, thought that, that many of us get to this particular part of life's journey, and, and we find ourselves springing with some kind of hope that maybe we're going to get up and out of the, 
the, the pool in which we feel sometimes life is and in which we feel we're sinking. Maybe we'll finally overcome that vice that's been uh, haunting us, that maybe was haranguing us especially strongly during the holiday season. Uh, maybe we'll finally find the strength we need to overcome that, um, that persistent character trait that causes us trouble in our relationships. Maybe we'll find a, a life preserver for that particular relationship that sometimes feels like it's going under, or maybe our health or our, our career or our finances will start to, to rise on a better tide, or perhaps the, the next administration won't be the anchor that many people fear, but the, the, the life raft that or pulls us up out of the swamp of Washington, or maybe Jesus will come again and just get us out of this whole mess, and the faithful will be lifted out of the swirl. Hope springs eternal for us that this kind of rescue will come. And for many of us, hope is just that voice that whispers inside of us, don't give up yet. Don't give up yet. Keep paddling. Things are going to get better. Your rescue is near Hang in there. This is the whispered voice of hope in our lives. Hope is, I think, the impulse that moved the Persian astrologers that we meet in Matthew chapter 2 to leave behind their lives, uh, to make the long track that it was, the difficult journey that it was, to go all the way out to Judea. It was the hope of meeting a different kind of king and a different kind of kingdom uh, presumably they'd grown weary of the old kind and went in search of the new. Uh, hope is one of the most powerful, motivating, transforming forces that there is in all of the world. Hope is the thing that, without which we really can't live our lives. It's the breath in our lungs, as we were singing a little while ago. And hope is what you and I, as followers of Jesus, are meant to be especially full of filled up with in an unusual kind of way that offers resource to other people, no matter what confronts us in the days ahead. In one of his letters, in his writing to the church at Colossae, St. Paul urges, do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Say that with me out loud. Do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is why over the course of um, today and in the weeks to come, we're going to be exploring together the hope of the gospel. We're going to be talking together, already have been. We started last week with uh, Steve's message here and Aaron's message in our sanctuary to talk about the reasons for the hope the gospel gives us that can uh, leave our lives more filled up than they otherwise would be. And, and to describe that hope it's important to first disentangle it from some of the confused or the contorted or distorted notions of hope that very often occupy our thinking as we go through life's journey. To begin that process, I think of the story uh, that hails way back from the 1950s, actually from the Korean War. And in this particular setting, a group of American soldiers um, called Baker Company had gotten completely cut off from the rest of their um, colleagues by the advance of enemy troops. And for hour upon hour, the command headquarters had been trying to reach Baker Company. 
They kept radioing out into the silence, hoping to get some kind of signal that the folks in Baker Company were okay. Finally, a very faint transmission was received. Uh, this is Baker Company. This is Baker Company. What's your status? Asked the radio operator back at headquarters. What's your status? Well, said the soldier out in the field. The enemy is to the east of us, and the enemy is to the west of us, and as near as we can tell, they're to the north and to the south of us now. And then there's a brief pause, and the sergeant from Baker Company says with determination, good news, sir, there's no way the enemy's getting away from us now. Now, you've got to admire that kind of zeal and that kind of courage. But you've got to also recognize something about that particular perspective. It is foolishly optimistic, right? It is, it is simply out of touch with the reality of the circumstances that Baker Company is in. And the reality is the battle didn't end well for Baker Company that particular day. And there's a point in this for us. Christian hope, the kind of hope that we have in the gospel, is not an irrational optimism. Okay? It's It's not a baseless optimism. The hope held out in the gospel, as Paul describes it, isn't the belief that we're going to miraculously win every single one of the battles and the circumstances we find ourselves in. It isn't this belief that we're going to somehow just dramatically and suddenly sidestep all suffering and pain in life. That's not what Christian hope is all about. On the contrary, when we side with Jesus, we're going to find ourselves drawn into conflicts and struggles that we might never actually have been in before that are going to test us and stretch us and 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 often cause difficulties for us had we not aligned our cause with that of Jesus Christ. And Jesus was really blunt about this, even with his own disciples. He said, guys, in this world, you're going to suffer. You know, they were hoping that he was going to be the kind of Messiah that would bring them to the, to the pain-free zone of life, total comfort, a new day. And Jesus said, guys, in this day, in this world, you're going to suffer, but you be brave. You hang on. You have hope. Because I have overcome this world. So sometimes you and I, in our lives, in our families, our workplaces, in our church life, in our circle of wider family and friends, we're going to find ourselves in struggles and we're going to seem to lose in that moment. We're going to see the good apparently go down in that particular moment. And we need to remember that Christian hope is not irrational optimism about present circumstances. It, It is a persevering trust that in the end, God's hand is holding us, and God's way wins. Secondly, it's important to see that Christian hope is not a blithe confidence in evolutionary progress. How many of you have ever heard somebody say, don't worry, things will get better? Raise your hand if you've ever heard somebody say that. Don't worry, things will get better, to encourage you. Or, or relax. You can't stop progress. You just can't stop progress. Or I love this one. It's okay. Time heals all wounds. 
Heals all wounds. We hear these things, we sometimes say these things to one another. It's another version of hope. It's one of the versions of hope that competes uh, with a genuinely Christian hope. It's this assumption that left alone, things just naturally improve over time. They just spontaneously evolve toward the better. And given enough, enough time, the thinking goes, our, our educational processes and our technological advances is going to usher in a more utopian kind of society. And we'll elect the right leaders and we'll enact the right laws and the great society will finally be ours. And, and how many times have we heard that kind of thing being advanced to us, that kind of hope being pushed our way. Sometimes you'll hear even the followers of Jesus talk that way as if given enough time and enough legislation, we just could bring about this Christian America on our own efforts. I hear that a lot. I probably have, have fallen prey to it myself. In his phenomenal book, um, Surprised by Hope, uh, British theologian N.T. Wright says this, the early Christians did not believe in progress. Sit with that for just a second. The early followers of Jesus did not believe in that kind of progress. They did not think that the world was getting better and better under its own steam or even under the steady influence of God. They knew God had to do something dramatic, radical, intervening, in order to put things to rights. What Wright is getting at there is that the early church believed that God had created this incredibly good world. And we'll say more about that in coming days. They inherently saw the world as good. It was God's marvelous creation. But, but sin, a turning away from God and towards self, and, and evil had so penetrated that goodness, that good world, that, that merely external remedies were utterly insufficient to sorting things out and making things right. It would be like trying to cure a cancer patient by just wheeling in cartons of Band-Aids. And they looked around and they saw the, the, the political powers of that age and the, the, the social movements of that age, and I'm, just, I'm being a little anachronistic here because they didn't have Band-Aids in those days, but it's a little bit like them trying to solve all these problems by by addressing it with band-aids when the issue was cancer, something fundamentally wrong at the center. And the early believers felt that until human, humanity's core illness got addressed through, through confession, acknowledgement of the, of the illness, through repentance, through a turning away from the things that just keep feeding that illness, uh, through the work of God's Holy Spirit that is the cure, for the illness, until the core conditions of pride and of fear and of selfishness that you and I still bring to all of our relationships, uh, that we still have got going on in our lives, until that gets transformed from the center and moves on out, then our progress is always going to be limited. It's always going to be way short of what we hope for. It's going to be limited to, to, to simply a longer and comfier and more distracted sinful life and not the new life uh, that God longs for us to experience, the, the kind of flourishing, the amazing life of love 
that God has created us for. So, so hear me on this. Christian hope, Christ, genuinely Christian, the hope that the gospel holds out is, is not confidence in sort of a natural evolutionary sort of progress. Time will take care of it. But in the transforming power of God that can enter into human lives and alter things from the, from the inside outward. Okay, that's a second critical dimension of Christian hope. Which brings me to the last kind of disentanglement of this concept from uh, conventional ways of thinking about it. We talk a lot more about this. We're going to talk a lot more about this in the weeks to come. But let me emphasize that Christian hope is also not pie in the sky when you die. Christian hope is not fundamentally really focused on the notion of this sort of pie in the sky when we die. Now, somewhere along the course of history, that idea got laid in deeply to the point where um, it has profoundly influenced the way many people uh, in the faith and watching the faith from outside think about the faith. Uh, the idea got laid into people's minds that life on this earth was either so dismal or the effects of sin so bad or the rewards waiting for us beyond the clouds were so juicy that our greatest hope lies in escaping this earth and living forever in heaven one day. That was, the, uh, that was the idea that got laid in. How many of us have held that belief, I wonder? How many of us sitting here right now hold that belief, I wonder? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands this time. But it's a potent idea. Um, the chief problem with the idea is it is not biblical. It is, it is not what the early church believed in. It is not what they staked their lives on. It was not the hope that drove them through life. Because they had met the risen Christ, these people were not afraid to die, at least not in the normal way that people approach death. Thousands of them, in fact, were willing to undergo martyrdom because they were convinced there was indeed a dimension to life beyond this material world. They had met it in Jesus and it had left them changed in their perspective about life and death. They certainly trusted that after they died, Jesus would take them to paradise. They believed that. I say to you, as Jesus said to the thief on the cross, this day you will be with me in paradise. They believed that too. But they did not believe that some disembodied heaven was their ultimate destination. They didn't think that was that was home. That was where they were ending up. As N.T. Wright puts it, their ultimate hope was that what the creator God had done in Jesus Christ and supremely in his resurrection is what he intends to do for the whole world. Let me try and sharpen the point on that. The first Christians believed that the stunning renewal of Jesus' body was a pointer to the glorious renewal that God had planned for our bodies and for this whole creation, for this marvelous earth. 
And if you read the last chapters of the Bible, and we'll return to those later, you'll see that God's final plan isn't to have his people escape this polluted planet. That is the theme of a lot of sci-fi movies. It's not the Bible story. The biblical vision is that God is going to establish a whole new world on this earth, and this will be our final home. In other words, Christian hope, the hope of the gospel we hold on to, is not for pie in the sky when we die. It's for the banquet of a completely renewed earth. That's the focus of Christians, on our movement towards that completely renewed earth. And that complete renewal, we know, is something that only God can bring about. But out of hope for that coming day, we are already starting to rearrange our lives by the, the way of that kingdom coming. And we're already doing everything we can to arrange the affairs of this world so that when the final change comes, it won't be that dramatic or as dramatic. Now, I know that is a lot to take in, and I, I've been hustling through some big ideas pretty quickly here today. I'm just trying to lay down some groundwork for the conversations we'll have in the days ahead. But, but let me just wrap it up and say, this is what I'm hoping you're going to hold on to as we come to the table of our Lord uh, this morning together. You can live hopefully because no matter how high the waters get, no matter how tired you may get from treading those particular waters, there is an ultimate rescuer who has his eye on you, okay? He has his eye on you and upon everyone else in the pool. That is not irrational optimism, okay? It's not. Because God has shown his heart for us by coming to die in our place upon the cross, by pouring out everything of himself to us. He's shown the commitment and the heart that he has for us. He raised Jesus from the dead to demonstrate he's got the power we need to make things new. God can transform your character. That character flaw, that persistent vice can be eradicated by his power working in you. God can alter the circumstances of our family life, of, our, of, of the communities that we influence, of this world through the power of his Holy Spirit. And opening our lives to him and that power that works at the center of human beings is the hope of human progress. It's the greatest hope of human progress. So if we're putting our hope in the government or we're putting our hope in technology, let's just start scaling down our expectations there and put the hope where it belongs and the power of God at work in human lives. One day, this earth is going to be even better than our greatest notions of heaven. Think about that. One day you're going to be alive physically, bodily, in a place greater than your most blissful notions of heaven. God is going to make it a place of almost unrecognizable beauty and justice and peace. And in the meantime, he has invited us into starting to shape that kind of kingdom on earth, which is why Jesus says, pray, pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we'll come back to that idea 
Uh, Felicia will be sharing some very significant thoughts for us about that idea when we gather together in just a few days. Would you come with me now to this table? Would you come now to this place where hopes are renewed, where grace is found? The table of our Lord Jesus Christ is open to all who know they need hope. They need grace for living, who are willing to acknowledge their sin, to open their lives to him and to ask him to be their center, to be the power that renews and redeems and moves out through their life towards others. And if you know of your need in this way and you long for Jesus to be that kind of rescuer, that kind of savior, then take his hand today as it reaches out to you in the pool and let him lift you up and draw you to himself and feed you today and give you his rest as we come now to the table of the king.